SPX. It was first my first time in SPX. I spent one whole day, all day long, traveling because there was thunderstorms. My plane couldn't land. The next day, I was bouncing around like crazy. I went, had to get up really early. My books, or wherever I went, my books weren't showing up, or they, or I'd get them just in time. Had to go do a presentation in at Reason Magazine in downtown DC. Just one snafu after another. Then had to zoom back to Bethesda, get in a car up to Baltimore, do a signing in Baltimore. I thought for, I thought for sure the signing was going to start at seven, but it started at, it started at six right when I got there. So I had no time to have dinner. But Atomic Books has a bar now, so they said, oh, "Do anything yeah, to drink." Yeah, yeah. So it, both the owner and all my fans that kept, you know, I, I, of course nobody was forced me to drink it. But here I am on an empty stomach. They keep giving me drinks. Yeah. I have to get once the signing is over, and then I had a few more drinks with friends that I hadn't seen in ages before I had to jump in the car, go back to the hotel. I, I walk into the hotel. The hotel bar is, by then, it was Friday night. Everybody's there. I see all these familiar faces. I go in, and I was on an empty stomach, lack of sleep, chock full of booze. I was like so, I was more than drunk. I was hyper. I was yeah. like loony. And I didn't even realize it until. I got into my room, and then I was like, what the hell is going on? And the next day, I was like, did I seem drunk? And everybody was like, you were shit <laughs> Yeah, I had a, so, yeah. last night was similar for me, because I, I had just flown in, and I'm on such a tight schedule that um, you know, I wanted to meet up with some people, and I had to do it last night. So, you know, after... I tend to I tend to not you know drink a lot of water when I'm on a plane just because I don't want to keep running back and forth to the bathroom. So oh. so jet lag, dehydrated, and then yeah, then in the bar kind of kind of killed me. Um, how actually you know speaking of doing um, the book tour for, for for the new book, I'm I'm wondering if um, if it's different at all from past book tours based on the based on the subject matter. Yeah, well, I've never done like a real. The only t- time I did anything that was like close to a book signing tour was 20 years ago really? yeah I, other than that if a new book comes out I tried to as best I could cobble together like a handful of comic conventions to go yeah. to and promote it that way but uh, yeah it's been 20 years since I've gone in an actual book signing what was, tour so, so 20 years ago I was been... I went on a book signing tour with Dan Klaus and they called it the hate ball oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 and that was yeah. the closest thing to that I mean this is, this is a bit more highfalutin yeah they sometimes on that tour, sometimes I was crashing on people's couches, and, and it was like, it was like a, a rock. It was like a rock tour almost it, right? it, it, for like a for a just starting out indie rock band, <laughs> not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not an Elton John rock sure. tour. Um, this is more Elton John. <laughs> I go on. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, staying in nice hotels yeah. the whole time, and it's with a few exceptions, it's all almost all bookstores. You know, it used to be, I mean, until the internet put them all out of business, it seemed like uh, the main places and the best place for me to do signings or to sell my books were this sort of a, they were like both indie, they were indie record stores slash comic shops. Mm -hmm. So comic shops that didn't necessarily even have any superhero comics, you know. It was like all it was like all your underground shopping and under one roof, yep. and that's where handmade handmade shirts and yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and odd, really oddball books. So just everything that was anything that you weren't going to find at a Borders, you would you know that type of place. Just be, like you couldn't uh, they, you, you couldn't really do the the bigger chains or why why did you? Well, end they up didn't those places? They, because that's who wanted us, and that's where our books yeah. sold. They used to be a really. Sh- Especially in the 80s, late 80s. It all started to change gradually all through the 90s. But until then, until like around 91, 92, there was a really sharp divide between mainstream culture and underground culture. If you went into like a, you know, a, the record shop at the mall, you weren't going to find a, a Black Flag record. You had the pre-hot topic days, yes, <laughs> and likewise you wouldn't find yeah. my comics in a in a suburban comic shop, you know, in your typical comic shop. You had to go. It seemed like uh, every major city's downtown or any anywhere near a university, a major university would have one of these shops, and that was the only place you could find any almost anything published by Fantagraphics or Drawn and Quarterly, um, or by you know Sub Pop even, you know. Yeah. It, it, that started to change somewhat. That whole the grunge business and Nirvana that kind of like broke 
the boundary, you know. Then, then all of a sudden, there was this huge swell of people that wanted to know about all this underground yeah. stuff, you know. But prior to that, it was a really sharp wall. It's it's funny actually. The first the first time uh, it was actually the first time I was in Seattle. I went to the Experience Music Project. And they they had one of their you know endless grunge exhibits. Um, you know, a lot of Nirvana, memorabilia, you know, mud honey, like guitars and shirts and stuff. And then um, down down in one corner, a package of pencils. Oh, right, <laughs> package <laughs> of grunge pencils, <laughs> right, drawn by you. So I mean, that must have that must have broken you through a little bit too. The being kind of the grunge cartoonist. Uh, well, you know what? To, before that, there that words like grunge and slacker became common usage and everybody knew where it was hate comics from the moment it started sold just as well before all that you know because there was there was a couple of years where that thing that all became a phenomenon they just they didn't know what to call it at that point yeah you know just some people it, well the, the, it wasn't uh, commonly known outside of yep. underground circles in, ni- in 1991 by 1992 everybody it became a phenomenon you know and it broke through but my comic book sales between 1991 and 1993-94 it was the same so i for every person that might have picked up my comic because of this connection there obviously was another guy who was making a point not to yeah. touch it <laughs> sure sure um, but you, we, I mean, you, you, you definitely cultivated a, a very distinct style that you've, you've, you've stuck with for a while. And I'm wondering right. if that was – was it important for you to, to um, have something that people recognized instantly? Well, are you talking about my drawing style yeah. mostly? It's just uh, – well, that evolved. Somebody was just talking to me about this this morning, did an interview early this morning. Um, that um, – the way I drew, like with the rubbery arms and the yeah. uber expressiveness, more than anything else, I was trying to draw uh, like my favorite animated cartoons. I loved Warner Brother cartoons, and I loved Tex, Tex Avery. Avery. Yeah. My favorite, though, was uh, Bob Clampett and Chuck Jones too, but especially yeah. Bob Clampett. And I was always trying to get that uber kinetic feel on the paper which you is know. hard with a still image it is tricky you know it's it almost sometimes i'm like why am i even trying <laughs> it's not a, it's not moving yeah. the, those cartoons are literally moving but um that is what i was striving for and i you know of course i experimented in the past with drawing people more realistically if i mean if i cracked out a sketchbook and drew you i it would be in proportion and i'd draw your elbows correctly but um i just found that that rubberiness is more expressive. I just personally like it better, and yep. it, it's much... For me, it's a much better way to uh, get the characters' emotions across, you know, if they're all loose-limbed, you know what I mean? So, I and I just like it, and some... The only time I think about not doing it is how often people bring it up, and it bothers me that people don't... It worries me that people can't get past it and some people can't get past it. there's a lot of people who hate the way i draw well it's hard you know and, and 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 i guess i could actually sort of understand that from the standpoint of you know when you're reading i this wasn't an issue issue with me um but you know re- reading something about the woman who formed Planned parenthood for example i mean is right. that it seems like a, a strange choice to go with that style for that book right but um but then why does it have to be drawn realistically the way um, the way almost every yeah. biographical comic has been drawn? Why does it have to be so serious? Why does she have to be taken so seriously? You know, I mean, so why do you have to be so reverential when you do yeah. a biography? Those, to me, those are boring biographies. Yeah. Uh, I wanted when I read about her when I started reading about much of what she did in her life. So much of it was literally action packed. You know, uh, yeah, you, riots. You she, said was, she was a superhero in the end. She was. Uh, she was in riots. You know, so uh, she she was a quite an impassioned figure and had boundless energy. Even though yeah. she was sickly, she had so much energy. She just did so much that when I'd read about her life, I kept thinking comic book. I kept thinking like one of my comic books. You know, not some somber, realistically drawn thing, but one of my comics. And that's part of what inspired me, you know, is I want to write about people who were very lively, who yeah. did a lot. You know, you would need something to draw. You don't want to just draw 
people sitting at desks all the time. I had to, um, I mean, just to get the main thread of her story and her life's work across, I had no choice but to have scenes that just consisted of people sitting around talking. Sure. You know, I I was hoping, of course, I was hoping to avoid that completely, but it's impossible. Because she also was a woman of letters, and she was a lobbyist, and uh, a lot of it was people sitting around. I mean, that's most people's lives is sitting around talking, but it's just visually it's static. Um, but so I tried to keep pages like that at a minimum and I tried to move her story along in situations where things were a little bit more lively. Were you were you actively looking for a, a historical story to, to write? I mean, you know, you, you've moved in that direction a little bit. You did the, the, the president stuff in the back of um, Apocalypse Nerd. That's right, yes. Um, well, yes, but, uh, well, I've always been a history buff. Yeah. And, um, and yes, when I, and I love reading biographies, and when I read one about a character that, A, I find interesting, and, B, that I admire it to a certain extent... Um, I immediately start, my brain starts popping. I immediately start thinking about wanting to do a story about this character or that. I just, it's kind of buried in a Dark Horse Presents issue, but I just did this eight-page story about Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. And he's somebody that I could have easily done a whole book about. He was, him and Margaret Sanger accomplished more in their lives than anybody else I know. I've never read about anybody else besides those two who, uh, were able to accomplish so much and and compartmentalize and multitask. They just put everybody else to shame. It's remarkable how much they've accomplished, you know. Hamilton, especially since he died in his mid-40s, but what he did is just, it's ridiculous. He started the New York Post. He invented yeah. the uh, he invented the New York Stock Exchange, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. When, when I think about it, though, I'm wondering if, if, if accomplishing so much in their lives can actually be problematic when you're trying to write a book. Because you... you you packed so much into that, especially when I'm going back and reading, reading like the footnotes of the book. Um, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, you know, let me let me take like ten years out of her life and, and just focus on that and kind of you know try to tell uh, a linear story about a specific part. It's let me let me tell every single thing yes. that she did in the space of this book. Yes, and I, I felt that was really important. I didn't want to just. I get a little frustrated when I read about or read a biography or see a biography that only deals with one very specific time in this person's life. Yeah. I want to. I want. I don't feel. I'm not getting enough information. I want to know what he or she did that led up to that moment, and then what happened afterwards. There's only, as far as I know, there's only one existing movie about Sanger, and it's called. Tales from the Heart or something from the Heart. Some choices of the Heart. Sounds that's very sh- cool. like schmaltzy. And it's very uh it only covers like one year of her life. Yeah. And it was a a lot happened in that yeah. one year, but uh, for that reason alone I find it frustrating. But yeah, it's also a schmaltzy. They they made a mar- a total martyr out of her. Yeah, and it's what what year was that made or roughly what era was that made? I think it was made in the early 90s. Okay. Yeah, cuz I she just seems like somebody who until the you know eighties or the nineties is, is is a subject matter that nobody would have really touched, right? Yes. Planned Parenthood is a it's it's still a thorny subject it's, for a lot of yeah, people, and that's why that's why almost nobody can seem seems to be able to talk about her objectively because so many people have such intense opinions one way or the other on Planned Parenthood, yeah, and that. That's totally fueling everything that's, for the most part, almost everything that's said about her and written about her. You know, it's all incredibly distorted, and it has everything to do with Planned Parenthood. So, how, how do you how do you go back and weed through that? I mean, you know, the, if I if I could point to one example, the uh, like the, the the ladies of the Klan rally that she spoke at, right? Um, you said it's something that uh, opponents have kind of levied against her, um, and I'm wondering how you how you how you. When, when there's all this stuff written about her on both sides, how you weed through the bullshit? Well, that's just it. At first, it, you, I, first I stumbled... You Google her name. I see doctored photos of her at Klan rallies oh, wow. with crosses burning. Yeah. You know, there's doctored pictures of her riding in a car with Hitler. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then you would read, she was in the Klan. And it's like, what? She was in the Klan? She was a member of the Klan? 
but then you dig a little deeper, you read a little bit more of what this person is claiming with the doctored photo, and they're saying she gave speeches to the KKK. And again, that also is a lie. And they're lying their heads off by omission. That also is a lie. She gave one speech. She never attended a Klan rally. She wasn't in the Klan. She was totally opposed to the Ku Klux Klan, totally opposed to it. And again, this is at the same time you have to remember the context. This was at a time when millions and millions of people were in the Klan. It was as normal and as common to be in the Klan as it was to be in the Rotary Club or the Lions Club. You know, and it was and it was another fraternity. Of course, it was an evil one. You know, it was fueled or energized by hatred, but uh, it was extremely common. And a lot of politi- a lot of elected officials, the state of Indiana, almost every politician at one point was in the Klan. You couldn't get nominated, especially you couldn't get nominated as a Democrat if you weren't in the sure, Klan. Sure, yeah, Robert Byrd was yes. <laughs> in the Klan at one point. And um, so again, that's like something else that is. When you say the Klan, yeah. what that means when you say it in 1924 and what it means when you say it now, it's totally different. It's totally, you know, not totally different. It's, you know, the organization is still, for the large part, the basic tenets are still pretty much the same. But, you know, like the reasons that a lot of people joined it wasn't the same as somebody would join it now. You know, you weren't... It, it, if you were a poor, illiterate, or semi-literate white person... Chances are you couldn't get into the Rotary Club back then. Everybody, almost all men of of all backgrounds, belonged to a fraternity. That yeah. used to be before Social Security and Medicare. That is how communities took care of each other. So, if you're a poor white person, that was your default fraternity. You just needed clean sheets. Yeah, and the, the, like the Lions yeah. Club and the Rotary Club probably wouldn't have you. That was yeah. doctors and lawyers and businessmen who wanted to hobnob, and they didn't want some drooling Yahoo in there. But the Klan would take everybody, and they took all comers. And that was like, and it wasn't necessarily, or even at all, because you hated blacks. It was because they would have you. And um, so here's the other thing too. I'm, I, I keep digressing. <laughs> she spoke to a women's auxiliary yeah. again. Like all fraternities had a women's wing. The wives, the women's auxiliary, invited her. Again, this is so different. Everything I'm telling you is not what you read when you do a quick. Perusal, so it's not a complete lie when they said if you said Margaret Sanger spoke to the Klan. Technically, that's correct, but it wasn't a Klan rally. She didn't go. She wasn't there because she supported them, and that's just it too. It's like what did? And it also goes to show when somebody says that and they try to link her to the Klan, it goes to show how very very little they know about the Klan. The Klan was not in favor of birth control, and the last thing they wanted. The absolute last thing they would want is for a woman, any woman, let alone Margaret Sanger, who for most of her life was regarded, was a radical and a socialist. The last thing that they would want is someone like her coming there and telling their women, their white women, how to have less babies. That is not what they wanted. If you were the lead, if you were the grand wizard of the clan, that is the last thing you wanted. That's why, even though I can't confirm it, that is why I speculate in the book as to why... Her and again, this is something that is very distorted. Yeah, she she in her biography talks about the incredibly harrowing trip she took from the train station when because she, she got off at a train in New, somewhere in Jersey. Um, people drove her from the train station to where this meeting was held, and she talked about how they had to keep taking twists and turns, and they kept looking around, and it was all subterfuge and very very secret. And the people driving her were incredibly paranoid. And they were encouraging her not to look around, don't remember where you're being taken. When people read that now, and when they post it now, and this is something you see a lot on the internet, on YouTube, you name it, people who hate Margaret Sanger and are trying to discredit Planned Parenthood, they take her that quote verbatim. They describe how secretive it was. They're doing that because they are assuming that the Klan in 1924 was like the Klan now. If you wanted to go to a Klan meeting... Chances are you or the members of the clan want to keep it secret. If they want to keep it secret because they are now the clan is a very small yeah. and a very ostracized and a very hated group. It'd be a good idea for them, especially if you were like in an area where there weren't, like say Seattle. It'd be you would understand why they'd want to keep their meetings a secret. You know, they wouldn't want all their neighbors hating them and burning their house down. 
that was all of that was utterly unnecessary in 1924. You know, so and that, when she was talking about it, she's talking about how she was mystified. She was mystified by all of this, but she herself never said why. But that is the only reason I could think of is why is that the leaders of the clan didn't want this meeting to happen. The people who invited her did it against the wishes of the people who run the clan. There was no way in fucking hell that they would have okayed this. That's who they were afraid of. But again, context. People think that that it would be like writing to a clan rally or a clan meeting today. It wasn't. There was absolutely no reason to be secret. You would march in your bed sheets in front of everybody along with the million other clansmen to the meeting. So, um, and, and that's the other thing, too, is all of that secrecy was so rattled her. Like, she knew that there was something to be afraid of. She didn't know what, obviously. But the whole thing rattled her so much that they did ask her to speak at other meetings, other women's auxiliary meetings, not rallies, women's meetings. Who want, and all they wanted to do was have her tell them how to keep from getting pregnant. That was why she was there. But she turned down every other meeting. Meanwhile, she even says in her own biographies, which the people who are trying to trash her ignore, she talks about how all of her friends and cohorts in New York City are adamant that she not go. Yeah. They were saying, please don't, because they all hate her and her, her circle of friends, which in New York was mostly Jewish people, they, of course, hated the Klan. And they didn't care. It, it was all, the mu- all that much more worse that they were popular then. And they thought that her going there would lend them a certain air of legitimacy. Sanger hated the Klan, but she said, these are women who want to improve their lives. They want to have less babies. You think they're ignorant. I think they're ignorant. They're going to raise ignorant children. The, one of the best ways... I'm making less potential clan members when it comes right down yes, to I'm it. Yes, I'm making right? less potential clan members. If they have fewer children, the children will be better raised. They'll be healthier. They'll have, for those reasons alone, they'll grow up smarter, healthier, wiser. And that, and that chances are that they, when they grow up, they'll, the clan won't be for them. They'll be in one of the other fraternities that will accept them if they know how to friggin' read. You know? <laughs> are, 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 you getting in, are you getting in these sorts of conversations now, like now that you're touring around in the book? I mean, are people engaging no, you about it now? No, not yet. Um, I've only, so far I've only done two presentations. I have a slideshow, and I'll be doing one here on Thursday. I've only done two presentations, and I, as you can see, there is so much to be said, and I have so much to say that we never even get to a Q and A time. <laughs> you know, I have a slideshow, and I never get through half of it because every it's a mix of photos and com- pages from my comic. It's like fifty fifty, but every single slide, I just have so there's so much backstory, and there's so much to say that all of a sudden my time is up. When we look back on these historical figures and try to make their, their lives more black and white, I mean, Sanger is an interesting example of somebody who founded Planned Parenthood but was against abortion, right? Correct. Well, a plan, she started, um, she first attempted to start a National Birth Control League in 1914. Another woman started the first, uh, Mary Ware Dennett, started the National Birth Control League, and that didn't last very long. Sanger wasn't involved. And then she kept trying when she wasn't a fugitive or in jail. She kept trying to start a new uh, national association. Uh, she, um, and she started the American Birth Control League, and it didn't really get rolling until 1921. And then even then, even though she was the one more than anybody else, even though she had a lot of help, but more than anybody else, she was the main one responsible for starting that one, which, again, wasn't the first one. Um she was doing so many other things that it was pretty much impossible for her to stay in control of it. Uh, so there was, a, for the most part, a woman named Robertson Jones ran the American Birth Control League. And at one point, too, Sanger was so much more interested in, in her birth control clinic and research bureau. She Basically, she was really interested in the data she was collecting at her birth control clinic that she severed ties. She also kept arguing with the other women and other women who were running the league. So at one point, what what she was very interested in, through most of the 20s and 30s, she made sure that they had nothing to do with each other. So in a sense, for 15 or so years, she she divorced herself from the very organization she started. Then, once she realized she was going to retire, she realized, mainly for financial reasons, it was best to get them all together again. And if she wasn't there constantly, a constant physical presence herself... 
she then she wouldn't be fighting all the time, and everybody else could make nice with her not in, not physically in the picture. So in 1938, they brought it all together, and other people, not her, decided to call it Planned Parenthood. She yeah, hated, she hated that. the name. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she hated euphemisms. Yeah. So, um, it, but but she did remain to her dying day. She did. She was like, you know, honorary president, and she was the president of the International Planned Parenthood organization, which gave her excuse to keep traveling, you know, for the most part. But she started birth control clinics all over the world through that arm of Planned Parenthood. But but the people who ran it, she still argued with them constantly. It almost seemed like it almost seemed like she like made a point of disagreeing with them. <laughs> so that's why, yes, technically it's true she started Planned Parenthood. But when people say that, they go, oh, the Planned Parenthood lady. With that background I just gave you, I'm always like, there's yeah. a lot of caveats to that. <laughs> but anyhow, abortion wasn't even... She died in 1966. Abortion. Abortion didn't even become legal until 1972, 73. Some states started, that's another thing people keep forgetting, individual states started legalizing abortion before Roe v. Wade. Washington State was one of them. So it slowly was getting legal starting around 1970. That's interesting, actually. You know, if you, if you, track, if you track her life, you know, most people's lives, most people's politics tend to change over the course of their life. What's the... Um, what what's the the uh, uh, the Buckley quote about you know if you're um, if you're not a liberal when you're young you have no heart if you're not conservative when you're older you, you have don't no have brain. a brain and that would describes her in a nutshell although it's did she become more conservative as she well she um, not in a social sense she never became a conservative in a, like she always abhorred a organized religion you know and the Catholic Church just had a target on her back throughout her whole life. Yeah. Um, but uh, when it comes when it comes to money, she definitely changed her tune. She, um, to me, like the most. Obnoxious. She decided she needed it at one point. Well, she of course she always needed it. But that's an interesting thing about her too is even when uh, even when she was at her poorest and at her most radical, like and throughout most almost all of the nineteen tens, um, she had an interesting relationship with money. Where when she needed it. She would get it. It almost seemed magical. Like, uh, she just, she was, I don't even know how she had time, say, in 1914. Uh, I don't even know how she had time to still be a nurse. I suppose she still was working somewhat as a nurse, and she was writing a column for a socialist newspaper. Those, as far as I can discern, were her only sources of income. She wasn't a public speaker yet, wasn't a published author. Those two things later earned her all by herself quite a bit of money. So I, she didn't seem to have an income, yet somehow, before she took off for England, somehow she raised the money to print up 100,000 copies of Family Limitation, her pamphlet with all the uh, different types of birth control known to her at the time. Was how the, Where did that money come from? It's 100,000 copies of anything. Yes, it was just stapled in black and white, but even still, where the hell did that money come from? I have no idea. And her travels, too. You know, it'd be like, all right, she has no money, and she's going to China. <laughs> um, it's just it's very weird how she would suddenly raise funds. You know, obviously, you you you're still thinking about her now, and a lot of that is spurred on by the fact that you're you're doing these book tours and you're traveling right. around and doing interviews. But I'm wondering if you know once once you've got this massive project. I mean, how many how long did you work on this? Well, probably like it would total two solid years, yeah. but three years off and on. So you know, you're working on something for th- for three years. I mean, everything I've worked on for an extended period of time, I'm glad to have behind me once i'm done but right do, do you do you continue to research her i mean is she still um because there's still all these unanswered well, questions obviously well there's a there's a very good blog called the margaret sanger papers um margaret margaret sanger's paper project they have an excellent website they base they're based in uh, nyu in new york and they basically collect and catalog every bit of information they could find on her where whether she wrote it or uh, it's written about her and people that she's associated with 
you know, everything about, say, Havelock Ellis, they'll collect and catalog. Um, so, um, you know, if I go into Facebook, I friended their... I friended their um, blog, and their blog, it seems like once a week or at least once a month, they'll have a fascinating article, some small little aspect of her life that would always, I, that's something I didn't know, and it would totally surprise me. I just stumbled across two photos of her when she, and her sisters when they were very young, you know, young and poor, but still, when she was like a young girl, she was always getting professional photographs taken of herself. She loved to be photographed. Where the hell did she, it seemed like every time she had two pennies to rub yeah. together, she was getting a picture taken of herself. Beautiful, professionally taken photographs. This gorgeous picture of her and her three sisters when they were when she was like maybe eleven. Yeah, it's really fascinating, and 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 also a little. You, like you read a little thing about how I would stumble across something about how she loved to dance. In the 20s, she loved to go to dance clubs and would make up her own jazz dances. Or, uh, you know, or, or read about her fascination, at, and at one point, an obsession with astrology. I mean, I would, th- these are things like I can't even touch on because they're not like super pertinent to her life. But she, every year, had her chart done by a professional astrologer. She would c- travel, go way out of her way to find the world's best astrologer to make her chart. So, you know, she was a nurse, and obviously she had a, some kind of a background in science. But And there's this whole other side of her that seems to fly in the face of that. I mean, this, this is the sense of being kind of your job, right, is trying to figure out this person is try to kind of paint a full picture of a she person had, with all these very she disparate had en- she had endless facets and yes yeah. in some ways in certain ways she uh, sexually she was not conventional by any means she was not at all a monogamist and she definitely and, like she, she and I don't know if this was um, just because you had to shove so much in a book but she seemed to move on from that first husband really quickly at least in, in the book yes yeah you know I don't know if that was her plan. She never said so. But by, after 10 years of living this totally conventional suburban lifestyle, when her and her husband moved back to New York, I don't know how much it was, if it was intentional or not, but just hearing once she was mixing and mingling with a lot of radicals like uh, Emma Goldman, who was a big proponent of free love, they called it back then. Uh, she just she just yeah. dived right in. She yeah. uh almost immediately she had many many lovers but again I, I have to stress that she didn't sleep with she didn't fuck the mailman it'd be any man that uh, it was always a meeting of the minds yeah. anybody who had a lot to say yeah. and especially as she got older well she as she got older and more famous I guess she could afford to be even pickier so she still had a lot of suitors men flocked to her but they were all some combination of brilliant Rich and at least to some extent good-looking. You know, they had to have one of those things going on. Uh, they were all very accomplished, really intelligent, and accomplished, and they would have a lot to talk about. You know, it was very important that everybody she would spend time with was highly intelligent, and uh, and that, so it was. She talked a lot about it. This whole to her, it was like cosmic. This meeting. Of mind and body, you know, that may be in line with the astrology thing. Yes, so sex to her was very spiritual, and yet sex to her, as far as I could tell, even though she would indulge somebody that she really admired, like Havelock Ellis, with his very specific um, fetish, um, she herself, as far as I could tell, because she wasn't, she also detested pornography, so she wouldn't get very descriptive. She didn't, she would never talk like. I liked when it went in this particular hole. But it seemed to me like it was just... She liked coitus. She liked straight sex. She liked coitus with a man. Yeah. And it seemed like she didn't like anything else. You know? It seemed like when she actually was in having sex, it was just regular missionary yeah. position sex. And like I said, she hated pornography. She, it's weird how she didn't really, she never uttered an opinion at all about homosexuality, which again, for her time, shows enlightenment, because the default position back then was that it was disgusting, you know? As in, if she was going to say something about it, probably would have been negative. Negative, of course. Yeah. Or, or pres- that would be the default yeah. position. That would be presumed. You'd presume, and she never spoke of it negatively, you know? She just... 
She might, uh, you know, something like with talking about Havelock Ellis's wife, you know, who's gay, or even that's up for debate. Some people, I don't, I'm not, I haven't read enough about the two of them yeah. to uh, know about it. There are some people who scholars of Ellis and his wife Edith Lee's, where they feel like her homosexuality was largely her indulging him. I don't buy that just because why is she indulging him when he's not even there? <laughs> this, this is, I mean, this this is a, another problem of writing a book like this, though, is, you know, it's, God, it would just be so easy to just go down all these other avenues, right? I mean, it's to, right. to, to, to end up Keeping, researching every single person involved. When I started it, for whatever reason, I didn't even grill him why. I'm sure it was something economical. Um, the publisher, Jordan Quarterly, just told me I wanted to be 72 pages, 72 pages of comic art. So I was like, all right, uh, I'm not going to make it more than that because we also already agreed to a flat advance. So I'm like, why would I do more for the same amount of money? But then the hardest thing was how do I keep it? Especially, like, as I said, I still keep stumbling on all these interesting facts about her. And that never stopped. It was just cascading. It was falling down on me, all these fascinating stories and interesting tidbits. That I didn't know how I could fit it into 72 pages. I also kept saying, did she really do all this? That's the one thing I was constantly wondering. was like, how could she be at all these places? How did she do all these different things? She was on the go constantly. But then I'd read about, oh, but then she had a flare-up of TB. Or her spleen was acting up and it left her bedridden for months. I was like, how could she have been bedridden for months? How is that possible? When she also that year did all of this. You know, did she put put on a jetpack when she was a whole better? It's like it, this is like she bounced around the globe like crazy at a time when there was no air travel. Yeah, you know, once once the first time she rode on a jet airliner, she was like, "Oh my gosh!" She immediately thought, "Think of all the things I could have done if <laughs> this was here all my life instead of chugging across the Pacific yeah. on an overcrowded steamship." But but you feel pretty confident that you got the story pretty right. I, I've got the gist. I really hope I get the gist, yeah. and I also. One thing, well, I hope it was entertaining, um, but I really hope that I that I got the gist of what she was all about across, Re- like completely regardless of how you feel about Planned Parenthood. I hope that people go away with because everybody has a distorted assumption, you know, almost everybody, assuming they've heard of her at all. I'm surprised how many people tell me they've never heard of her. Yeah. Otherwise, intelligent, well-read people, they're like, who? Yeah. Um. But even people on the left have bought into these distortions. So many people on the left, you know, liberal white people these days, their favorite hobby is accusing other white people of being racist, <laughs> you know? And it's funny how, and I guess it's such a horrible thing to call someone, to call, if you say, oh, you know, so-and-so's a racist. That's such a horrible thing to say that if you say it about someone, the listener believes it must be true. You wouldn't say such a horrible thing if it wasn't true. It's like saying, you know, so-and-so is a murderer, you know, <laughs> or something like that, or an embezzler. Um, so they just, it's, well, the perverse thing is that they want to believe it. They want to believe it, so they'll hear it said, and I all the time I hear liberal, people also keep telling me, yeah, you wrote a book about her, or she's like a real racist, and also the eugenics thing. Yeah, really I was actually going to bring that up. You know, it really is, because that's another thing, especially too. around you know that era of Hitler. <laughs> I mean, that's a very touchy well, subject. Ever since, for obvious reasons. ever since, uh, yeah. ever, ever since World War Two, the, the trauma of World War Two had people reassessing a lot of things. The definition of eugenics is now the way it's used and spoken about these days. It is synonymous with Nazism. That is what people think about when you say eugenics. Purity of the race. You, peop, that, yeah. That's it. It's like, what does eugenics mean? It means Nazism, period. That is what people think eugenics means. That is not what it meant in the 1910s and 20s. It mean, The word literally means good genes, and it was a way to improve the human race. And, and every time Sanger talked, went on to this subject and used even used the word race, she was always talking about the human race. I couldn't find... A single instance where, in her own words, she made a distinction between ethnic groups, comparing one favorably with another. She's n- I couldn't find anything that would suggest she was a racist. Um, even people on the left, even some of her other biographers said, well, she said some things, but then they don't say what. They go, she said some things that kind of suggested that she bought into the 
uh, racist general attitudes of the times. It's like, okay, well, that'd be forgivable if she did, but what was it? I can't find it. She was like, you, she was uniquely non-racist for her time. She was unbelievably not a racist at a time when everybody was. But but it, but it's important for you as a biography, biographer to include the negatives in there as well. Right? Yeah, if sure. you're going to paint a, a, a full picture of this person, you've got to have that in there. Right. Well, j- just real quickly, what I was going to say, oh, sure. too, about um, eugenics was it was never solely comparing races. It was, uh, like, for example, prenatal care. That was a eugenics cause. Because uh, the whole idea was make the next generation better than you, make them healthier than you. So uh, if we used a 19... 19- 10's definition of somebody who practices eugenics, then any woman who refrains from smoking and drinking while she's pregnant is a eugenicist. Um, you know, dental hygiene, you know, education, all these, it's just, just anything that would make the next generation better. Um, what was fueling the more racial aspects of it was the massive waves of immigration, which which is like nothing compared to what we've experienced now. Like, you still have people freaking about you know, illegal aliens, and you, by that, that's like another way of saying brown people. But back then, there was massive waves of people, huge, it's nothing like now. So to nativists, to white, native-born Protestants for the most part, it was alarming. You know, they they saw their, they knew that it was going to mean their political clout would weaken, and it would change the nature of the country. The country used to be defined by them. And they knew correctly that wasn't always going to be the case. So they were alarmed by it. So uh, so not only, of course, were they in favor of uh, uh, forcibly sterilizing people who were inferior, even though they didn't always... They usually meant, you know, physical and mental disabilities that w- might get passed on. But, of course... They also would notice that poorer people had more of these mental and physical disabilities, and poorer people tended to not be wasps. <laughs> but and also at the same time, there was something called positive eugenics, and that was where the racism would come through. And that's where, and this is where her Sanger. Well, most of what you've said is problematic, though. <laughs> yes. Well, it, yeah. No, I know yeah. it is. I'm, that's what yeah, I'm talking yeah. about. I'm talking about the negative yeah. thing. This is where Sanger and most of the leading eugenicists of the time fought like crazy, and in fact, they said she wasn't a eugenicist. They wanted her out of the movement. They hated that she was latching herself onto the eugenics movement. Is They wanted white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to have more babies. They, they, like Theodore Roosevelt literally said, our gene pool, our country's gene pool is being polluted by non-wasps. Wasps have to have more babies. Uh, which Wilson also very much believed this. We needed more white babies. Wil- Wilson was an incredible racist. He hated black people. He was unbelievable. He fired every black person working in the federal government that wasn't a janitor. He was unbelievably racist. And yet people complained about Margaret Sanger. Yeah, I, I guess I guess we you know we we can only remember historical people for one or two things. Right. right. Yeah. So but everything else, either ex- good or bad. Except Margaret Sanger's being. Remembered, a lot of people are successfully pigeonholing her and having her remembered for something that she didn't even believe in. Yet these presidents did believe in it, but nobody ever talks about Woodrow Wilson that way. You know, nobody talks about him that yeah. way. But what they're accusing Margaret Sanger of, it's not true of her at all, and it's completely true of Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I guess just in, in all the research you've done, you've, you've, you, you have to kind of become a defender of this, right? I mean, now that you've, right. now that you've done all this digging. Right. And But as I interrupted you, of course there were things about her that... Uh, in her radical days, she was practiced in the 1910s when she was an avowed socialist. She was way too caught up in class warfare. She demonized people at middle... She demonized the wealthy and the middle class. Um, in a way that was both unfair and not to mention unproductive. You know, it was divisive. And then, um, you know, and after a while she realized she couldn't always count on her fellow socialists and she also was meeting a lot of incredibly rich people who were willing to help do anything and everything for her pet cause. Her best, the woman who became her best friend, Juliette Rubli, stinking rich, but, um... She got arrested along with Sanger at one point, you know. 
She, she was willing to do anything for Margaret Sanger. Not all socialists are willing to get arrested. <laughs> so, so, you know, if 72 pages was, was um, kind of imposed on you by, by, by Toronto Quarterly, I mean, ultimately, again, when you're talking about such an incredibly complex person and a life that you felt you needed to write about from beginning to end, um, can 72 pages ever be enough to tell that story? No, that's why there's so I those had, the I footnotes and footnotes which yeah. go on for so long. Yeah, yeah. That's like another you had fun though with the footnotes. I noticed. Yes, yes. Because again, there's still funny stories, yeah. and I didn't want to tell them dryly. There's still, you know, it was still funny, wacky stuff. So I try. I even was forcing myself to try to stick to the facts, but a few times I couldn't help but get a little colorful with the language. Yeah. You know, make it entertaining. Why not? Yeah, because. Nobody, nobody reads footnotes, right? <laughs> so everybody was telling me they like the foot. Who's read it yeah. so far that they enjoyed that as much as the so comic? You managed, you managed to find a way around that. I mean, right. that's ultimately the part that people just skip. But right. I guess it's seventy-two pages. You leave them wanting more, right? So they'll read anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured that there had that there had to have been questions yeah. in people's minds. I see, as I'm making clear here, I, there's still unanswered questions that I have about yeah. things I even wrote about. You know. Like, for example, where did she get the money, you know, and, and other things? Yeah. Why did she wind up hating Emma Goldman? Nobody knows. <laughs> so so is uh, do, do you keep doing biography? Do you stay on, the, on, on a history kick for a while? I mean, yeah, no, I would like to. Um, yeah. The plan is to do another one with Jordan and Quarterly. Okay. And I've always wanted to, since I've started... Uh, doing those founding fathers funny stories for Dark Horse, I would love to do a whole book of them. Um, and my editor, the editor I deal with, he would love that too. The publisher, Mike Richardson, he's yeah. he's not sold on that idea. Probably figures nobody would Dark buy Horse. it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, that's as far as I could tell, his only reason for being against it, which is an excellent it's reason. A fair, if you're a publisher, that's your <laughs> yeah. job. Uh, yeah, I I would love to see. Cause we, <laughs> We were talking about Murray Wilson earlier. I would love to see that. I mean, that's that's such a fascinating story. My wife Joanne keeps telling me I should. She really sincerely wants me to do a Brian Wilson biography. But he's still alive. So much has been written about him. He's still alive. And Dennis is a pretty good one too. Yeah, um, Dennis is a really amusing character. He's a funny character. But I, like Margaret Sanger, I wrote a warts and all book about her. But for the but she was a remarkable person. Yeah. It's amazing what she accomplished. So for those, for that reason, I have enormous respect and admiration for her. The same with Brian Wilson. Just based, you know, his art, his body of work, is phenomenal. And he overcame a fair amount, right? And so, just you know, when you think about the positives, why we talk about Brian Wilson, it's for producing an incredible amount of incredible art. So he's incredibly admirable for that reason. Dennis Wilson's not an admirable guy. He's he doesn't deserve his own comic. Book. He did one one great solo record, and I, actually I hate that. record. You hate that? I like that. Yeah, I, think, I, I, I like hate, that record a lot. I, I thought his singing voice. I know a lot of people. I know yeah. it was a surprise hit. A lot of I can't stand his voice on it. Yeah. It's just utterly grating. And also, when he first started writing songs, I thought he showed a lot of promise. He wrote quite some were very good. But after a while, it was just one maudlin ballad after another, just plodding piano. A weird story about him is he swear. You know that, again, it's like this song is the epitome of a type of song that I hate. You know that song, You Are So Beautiful? Yeah. Uh, Billy Preston wrote it, and Joe Cocker had the I hit with him. Came on, I was at a wedding the other day, came on, I just couldn't say in the room. I can't stand that That's song. That's a terrible song. Dennis Wilson is convinced he wrote it. He is convinced he wrote. He's you know he was like a raging alky. Yeah. He swears he was at some party. He was at this party. This is what's probably true. He was at a party. Billy Preston was there. Billy Preston was plodding away at the piano, and he said. And he says he sat down and started plodding away at the piano with him. He claims that him and Billy Preston at this party wrote that song together. He never sued, but he always told everybody. Yeah. He and because I always wondered about that, like when you go to see the Beach Boys live after that song was a hit, he always sang that song. It wasn't a Beach Boys song. He was the thing is, it sounds so much like a Dennis Wilson song. The the croaky voice, the slow plodding piano, the whiny cry. What would I do without you, baby? Sentiments. It's so much like a Dennis Wilson song that, in his insanity, he. It seems like he completely convinced himself that he wrote it because n- nobody else says he wrote it. 
a lot of people were at this party. They were like, no, Dennis. And they go, Dennis Wilson didn't write that song at the party, and neither did Billy. Billy Preston wrote that song in his house. He didn't write it at a party. But let's but let's back <laughs> but let's back up a second though, because you know you're saying you're saying the reason why you you. You, you picked Sanger was because she did so much in her life, and that's why you might pick Brian Wilson and because they have a lot of admirable traits, but the character you're best known for is not an admirable character. It was not accomplished a lot with his life. Right, right. It's Buddy a flawed Bradley. character. Yeah. yeah, but the thing is, um, yeah, all, all of my characters that are fictional are yeah. flawed because I want them to be relatable. So, and Dennis Wilson, of course, is more relatable than Brian Wilson, yeah. you know. Brian Wilson... Brian Wilson's plenty flawed. He was, he was uniquely talented, yeah. and we wish we could relate to that, but there's not too many people like him in that regard. There's plenty of people like Dennis Wilson. Um, that's just it. I might as well just cre- make up a character and then okay. take the story I want. You yeah. know, if I'm writing a biography, I want to get my facts straight, so why would I invest all that research and time into somebody that... I don't find admirable, and in in writing a biography about writing a biography about a real person, you know, I want to celebrate their life. You know, it's somebody that I think deserves more celebration and more under, deeper understanding than, than than they're getting. It's fun to write flaws, though. Yeah, and the flaw, like in the Sanger book, yeah. I'm sure flaws are in there. I, my practice, my trial run of doing the Sanger book was I did a 12-page biography about a woman named Isabel Patterson for Reason. That's in the new Reason book collection. And uh, and she was somebody, of course, she's a fairly obscure character. Most people never heard of her. But uh, a very accomplished, and I wanted to celebrate her for a number of reasons. But I also touched on her flaws as well. There you go. It's Peter Beck. Uh, always a fantastic conversation with Peter. Uh, met up with him at a bar, a whiskey bar in Seattle called uh, called, called the Whiskey Bar. Um, highly, highly recommended. Uh, a little loud maybe for recording an interview, but a uh, good place for, for, for drinking whiskey. Uh, Peter's new book, uh, that Margaret Sanger biography that we spoke about, is out now on Drawn and Quarterly. That's called Woman Rebel. Uh, he's got a new Buddy Bradley collection that'll be coming out in Fantagraphics in the, the not-too-distant future. That's called Buddy Buys a Dump. It collects uh, a bunch of those a bunch of those hate annuals. Um, thank you so much to him for taking the time. Uh, thanks to Brian for editing this together. Thanks to Mark and everybody else at Boing Boing for hosting the thing. Uh, thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, go rate us on iTunes. If you don't, uh, I don't know us on the Zoom store, I guess. Uh, you can send us a note. It's rayylcast at gmail.com. You can follow us at Tumblr. That's rayylcast.tumblr.com. Uh, lots of good episodes coming up for you. We will catch you in uh, just about a week's time on another episode of R.I.Y.L. 